<clears throat> Thank you, Corky, for starting that round of applause. I was afraid that nobody was going to clap. And that's our tradition, right? To give God praise. Well, good morning. It's been a while since we've been here. It's good to see everybody. Uh, I think everybody in the congregation survived Hurricane Michael, though not everybody survived the power outages. So it's good to see everybody cleaned up. I'm sure you're grateful for electricity. You're grateful for water, at least those that that uh, ran out of it. Um, I don't mind losing power for a couple days, but then in living rustic, it's just kind of a good reminder. But then after more than that, I'm ready to have it back. So I was ready to have it back. But last week, the church did not have power until Sunday night. And I think a, a lot of a whole group of people got power back Sunday evening. And that's when we got ours back. But it's uh, it's good to be back here in the house of God, safe and sound. Um, I missed the Sunday before that because we were in Maryland for a family wedding. And I just want to thank Corky for expounding the word of God in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Um, I had an opportunity to listen to it and read some of it as well. And you did a great job, Corky. The, the body was well fed. Um, so thank you very much. It's it's a very comforting experience to know that the congregation is so well cared for. There's a lot of men in here that can bring the word of God. So thank the Lord for that. Well, it's been a while. So just as a recap, we are in Matthew and uh, I think we're in Matthew. What are we in Matthew 17? What's the bulletin say? Does anybody read the bulletin anymore? There you go. 17. And just to recap, the the disciples crossed a mile marker in the kingdom mission when they confessed Christ, when they knew with their hearts, they knew with their minds who Jesus is. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And they said, you are the Lord. And they nailed it. They got it. They understood all the the prophecies, everything that they had ever longed for. The person that they waited for in the Messiah was standing before them. And it was a it was an awesome moment in the kingdom. And then no sooner did they make that confession when Jesus starts talking about the fate that he will suffer. He will suffer physically and he will even face death. He's already revealed himself many, many times as God. He's revealed himself as God through fulfilled prophecy. He's revealed himself as God through supernatural works. And he's revealed himself as God through the profound words and the authority by which he speaks and also by his divine knowledge. He's revealed himself as God through John the Baptist as the herald who was commissioned to Inform the people and proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. In this passage this morning, he reveals himself as God yet again, but in a different way, in a very unique way. He manifests himself in his illuminous glory. We're not used to contemplating that. We don't see this very often. We don't get a glimpse of heaven or a glimpse of deity very frequently like we will this morning. And as we read these words and this passage and this story that describes what we know of as the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus transfigures before three of his disciples, it just reminds me that we have this in God's word because he wants to be known in this way. 
He wanted to be known in the way of the supernatural. He wanted to be known in the ways of speaking words of power. But he also wanted to be known in the way of being transfigured and literally illuminated and glorified, if you will, a display of his glory to the disciples. So keep that in mind as we explore this passage, because it's a big part of our eternal future. What they saw or glimpsed on this mountain is really what we're going to live in and glory in forever and ever. The pure light and glory of God. And the, and the disciples were profoundly affected by this experience, not just intellectually. But when we read this, you will see that, see that it connected with them spiritually and it connected with them emotionally. We know that because their response to this, and I know I'm getting my head on myself, but this is just kind of a glimpse of where we're headed. Their response to this experience of seeing Jesus glorified is they just hit the dust face first in the ground. There's something that that they were aware of about themselves as they began to see and become aware of the glory of God. And so this experience, in one sense, shames them terribly and yet lifts them beautifully because they live through it. They see the glory of God and they live through it. Christ is our hope and Christ will be revealed in this beautiful passage. I want to look at three things in Matthew 17, 1 through 13. And the first is in the first four verses. Jesus' divine glory revealed. Let's read that. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So here they are another day as a disciple, another day of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in this passage, we learn that not only do you have to deny deny yourself, and take up your cross to follow Jesus. But sometimes you got to be in good shape to follow Jesus. Because he took him up a mountain. I remember years ago when we got together a group of people to go on a little daily hike up the mountain called the priest. And there was a few of them I never heard so much whining and complaining about. When are we going to get to the top? I didn't know it was going to be this steep. Well, I'm just making fun, but... This was a mountain. We're not sure exactly which mountain. We know what area they are in. And and the scholars have kind of leaning on um, a mountain that is Mount Maron. That's about 4,000 feet in elevation. And the priest, which is the mountain that we hiked on several years ago, is just 62 feet higher if that counts. So this could have been quite a hike. So following Jesus, sometimes we got to be in good shape, at least if not physically Spiritually. So up the mountain they go. And it's only three. Peter, James, John. It's, it's, it's what is known of the inner core 
those three, that, that special team, Jesus drew them in his sovereign providence. Just those three. He had them all close, but those three he drew just a little closer. Revealed just a little more. Held just a little longer. We call them the inner circle. And you know, we're all God's servants. God's disciples. But he doesn't treat us all the same. He doesn't relate to us all the same. And there's a sense in which we're all exposed to the same things. But then there are other experiences that we have that are unique, that are different. And and he calls me into some things that he doesn't call you into and vice versa. And so we all hear the same thing and we're exposed to the same word and we have the revelation. And yet the Holy Spirit will lead us to different places and draw us into different places. So my story is somewhat like yours and it has the same beginning, salvation in Christ and the same end. But getting there, all of our stories are different. And Jesus, by his divine divine providence, gave the inner three alone this experience. This is a part of their story. As a matter of fact, we'll learn in the end that he says, don't even share this yet. The world's not ready for it. They're not ready for it. Just what you'll understand, there'll become a time when it'll make the impact it was supposed to make. But for right now. But God reveals himself to different people in different ways. He calls people to different places. And while all this is happening up here on the mountain... And they're being treated to this heavenly experience. There's something going on down at the bottom of the mountain. The other disciples that remain, they had their own thing going on. And we'll learn about that next time. They had their own experience that these three didn't get to experience. Then after they reached the top of this mountain, really this, this New Testament passage kind of unfolds like something right out of the Old Testament. The things, the ingredients, there are a lot of familiarities with this passage that they are in the Old Testament, in particularly in the book of Exodus, when Jesus delivered the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. He brought them into desert to the desert and on the way to the promised land. But they make a stop and it's there that he gathers them as his chosen people. He's going to make them a nation, a light to all the other nations. And in order that To do that, he has to give them the commands. He has to give them what's going to make them different. What's going to make them alike. And so he reveals himself. And during that process, there was a time when he calls Moses, their leader, their appointed leader, up to Mount Sinai. And very similar things took place up on Mount Sinai as what is taking place on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there it was Moses alone that was called up on that mountain. The others had to stay below. The others had to even keep their distance because what was happening on the mountain Sinai was so miraculous and so spectacular and so so glorious. They weren't allowed to be apart. They were too unclean. They were instructed, don't get close. And there were barriers set up lest you die if you touch it. But Moses, God's servant, was on the top and he was given the Ten Commandments and they were having this very sweet, unique kingdom building fellowship. And it was then that Moses asked God for a glimpse of his glory. Moses knew that God was incredible and special, but he also knew that he wasn't getting the whole thing. God's just way bigger than even what he had witnessed, even holding the waters at bay so that the nation could go through it. God's even more powerful and bigger than that. And Moses says, I just want to I just want to see your glory. 
And that wasn't possible at that time. Because God is so glorious that man's body cannot physically contain him in this form. We have to be transformed. We have to be glorified. And then we can handle it. Right now we can't. But God treats him to just a shadow, just a glimpse, like a, a, a barely a reflection, a sparkle of his glory. And it was so powerful. It was so glorious, just a shadow, almost the, 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 the after or overspill of it. That Moses' face shone so bright that it had to be veiled. He just absorbed it or, or, or reflected it in some way. And we have something similar that takes place on this mountain. Because God shows up in his glory. Through the transfigured Christ. We also have a cloud. God revealed himself to Moses in that cloud. And there's a cloud that shows up. In this mount. And God's voice speaks through this cloud just like he did through the cloud to Moses. Even the Old Testament is filled with times where they want to build shelters and booths. And Peter suggests that we might want to build some right here and now for our special guests. So there's a lot of familiarity here. But there's also a marked difference. There's a marked difference in this scene. In Exodus, Moses asked to see God's glory and the shadow of God's presence passed before him. And just that lit Moses' face up. But here, notice that the, the glory of God isn't a reflection coming from Moses. The glory of God is coming from the person of Christ. It's not just a shadow. It is emanating from his very, mysteriously from his being. The person of Christ, the son of God, through his body, the light of God, the glory of God is coming forth. And so that his skin is, is so bright that if you have to describe it, you're going you're gonna to pick from the brightest thing you know in this earth. And that's the sun. And the sun is so powerful and so bright that our bodies are not physically equipped to be able to look at it directly for very long or it does damage to us. And it's this kind of description that the disciples use to explain this experience. Christ was bright as the sun and he was so illuminous that even his clothes were pure white. And I think about snow blindness when you have Pure white snow, open fields of it, and then you have the bright sun on it. And we, aren't, we are not able to look at that either. It's too much for our bodies. And this is what they were experiencing. But it wasn't any kind of reflection. It was coming from inside the person of Christ. God's glory in Christ. But what does this mean? It means that it's a revelation or a manifestation, once again, that Christ is God. It's the deity of God. One day for Sunday school, Kevin brought scripture after scripture after scripture that shows that Christ is God. He is of the, the Godhead. So he's not reflecting glory like Moses. He is God's glory. It doesn't shine on him. It shines from him. Him. The transfiguration is just another demonstration of the deity of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the exact representation. 
He is the radiance of God's glory. And so they were seeing the radiance of God's glory on that mountain. And it comes through Jesus in human form. He is equal to God in every way. And he wanted his disciples to experience that aspect of him. So he's not preparing the way for God. He's not pointing to somebody who is God. He is revealing that he is God. And when he took on flesh at the incarnation and he came down to earth, he takes he's in his glorious essence and he takes a different form. He takes the form of a servant. Philippians tells us that. So he takes on flesh and even the form of a servant. So there's a sense in which his glory is veiled while he is walking this earth. Philippians 2 Six, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. But underneath those servants' clothes, they got a glimpse of what exactly is being veiled, what he has laid to the side, what he has been containing in his human form. In Colossians 2.9, the apostle says, in him is the fullness of deity. So the fullness of the Godhead is him. Colossians 1.19 For in him all fullness For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And I'm getting a little ahead of myself here in verse 5. But based on this vision, based on the, the glory of Christ that's emanating from him, The father shows up in the cloud and he doesn't say anything about the disciples. He doesn't say anything about Moses and Elijah and the special guests. He only talks about his son. And in essence, what he does is he looks down and he sees his glorious son and he says, I love him. I love him. I take delight in him. I am pleased in him. John Piper says God did not look out over the world to find a man who would qualify for his delight and then adopt him as a son. He's not the archangel uh, Michael, as Jehovah's Witnesses say, or a, a created being, as the Mormons say. Rather, God himself took the initiative to bestow his own fullness on a man in the act of incarnation. Or we could say he took the initiative to clothe the fullness of his own deity with human nature. And Colossians 1.19 says he was pleased to do this. It was his pleasure. It was his greatest delight. And he goes on to say we're on the brink of the ineffable here. But perhaps we may dare to say this much. As long as God has been God. He has been conscious of himself. And the image that he has of himself is so perfect and so complete and full as to be the living personal reproduction or begetting of himself. And this living personal image or reflection or form of God is God, namely God the Son. And therefore, God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father and equal in essence and glory. Timothy Keller puts it a little bit more simply 
when he says Jesus Christ is not just a guy. He's not just somebody who is a sort of glorious or who points to glory or points to God. He is the glory of God. That means that he is the ultimate reality. So before the disciples is the ultimate reality of the universe. And Keller goes on to say, if you will, they got to see Jesus, not as Clark Kent, but as Superman. The transfiguration reveals the divine glory of Christ. And second, it reveals Jesus' saving power. And we see this in verses 5 through 8. Verse 5 says, He was still speaking when? Who's speaking? Well, Peter. Remember Peter? He's a spokesperson for the whole group. If anybody has something to say, the other guys, they keep it to themselves. Not Peter. Peter's going to talk about it. So Peter was still speaking and Peter was interrupted while he's talking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. In the Old Testament, Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the mountain. And there was a lot of thunder and a lot of lightning on that mountain. And those Israelites down at the bottom, they knew something spectacular was happening up there. And there was a lot of fear At that moment, they trembled below at the thunder and lightning. And the whole idea and what they were instructed instructed was you don't get near this mountain. And here's why. Because God's up there and God is really holy. And you are really not holy. And you can't come into the presence. And so if you even touch it, when you're that close, you're gone. And this was, you know, the Jews taught themselves orally and traditionally from generation to generation. This story was, of course, still very well known. You grew up with this idea and this image about the illuminous glory of God and how it can be the death of you. And so, whereas there's an excitement in one sense, there's a terror in in another sense. When you have this kind of experience, when you get that close to God, there's something about it. With all the pretense and all the bravado and all the thoughts that we might entertain. Well, if I ever stood before God, I think I could show him this or he would accept me because of this or I did this good work. It's all gone. And what happens when you get that close to God is you see how worthy he is. That's you see just two things when you're that close. You see how worthy he is and how unworthy you are. Isaiah said in chapter six, when he had that experience, woe is me. What else are you going to do when all the pretense and all the fakery is moved out of the way because of the glory of God? You're just left undone. You don't have anything. The only way that God could dwell with sinful man in the Old Testament was through that very, very complex system of sacrifices and ceremonies. So so sacrifice after sacrifice was was made blood just pouring forth almost day and night 
offerings being made, all of that complexity, just so man can dwell with God and live. And even the temple, when they came into the temple, they were cut off from God through that very, very thick handmade veil that God instructed the people exactly how to make it so you can live. Don't make it any thinner or any thicker or any bigger or any wider. It has to cover this. It has to cover my glory because you cannot live through it. All of that was to shield or veil man from God's glory because they can't stand it. It's the only way God could dwell with man. And so here are the disciples on this mountain. And I don't really know exactly what they were experiencing with Jesus's transfiguration. But when that voice, when that cloud comes and that voice speaks from that cloud, they know it's God. They hit the deck. They're face down. Their eyes are clamped. What else are you going to do? What else are you going to do when you're that close? To truth and ultimate reality. The only thing we can do is hit the deck. And I think they do that impulsively. They do that reactively because they realize I'm doomed. The only thing I the only hope I possibly have to live through this experience is God's mercy. That's it. Because I have nothing. So I'm going to show how base I am, how humbled I am, how respectful I am, how undone I am. I've got nothing. All I want to do is get hide myself from this. And pray that I live through it simply by mercy. And so there they are, terrified. And they have seen quite a bit in their lives. And then you have this, this, this beautiful thing happens in this story. And there's Jesus. And he comes to them and he touches them. And, they're, and I'm just imagine they're thinking, any second now I'm just going to... I know what happens. I read the stories. I'm just going to. Here comes Jesus and he touches them. And then what they hear is Jesus's voice. He comes. Rise. Have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. They're shivering. Wetting their pants and he taps them on the shoulder. What's the message? It can't, what, what else could it be with that rich history but that Jesus saves? Jesus stands before you and the glory of God. Jesus is what allows you and enables you to come into contact with the joy of God, the, the, the depth of the mercy and the love of God and live through it. It is through Jesus. See Jesus. Hear Jesus' voice. He's the mediator. He is the bridge and the old and the New Testament talks about Jesus is the temple and Jesus is the veil. And Hebrews tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil that had been constructed really to keep people alive from the glory of God because they're so sinful, it's torn from top to bottom, symbolizing that through Christ, we can actually experience fellowship and the joys of of the things that take place in heaven. We can know this ultimate reality, God. He is that which brings all purpose and all meaning into everything 
that we are. He holds our molecules together as we sit here this morning. He is a powerful God. His word creates things by fiat. He just speaks it. You don't have to sit down there and scratch numbers. He knows it. And we can know this God only through Jesus Christ. They lived through it because Jesus was there and he had mercy on them. He had mercy on them because he was willing to do that. And they were saved because Jesus took on the form of flesh to become killable, if you will, because he can't as God. And so he becomes very vulnerable and does take the form of a of a servant. And he suffers much and he goes to the cross and he absorbs all of the wrath that we deserved. And because of that, we can see God and we can know God and we can live with God forever. No wonder the father speaks so highly of him. He's so delighted in his son. We talked a little bit about this this morning in Sunday school. He was pleased as he saw his son suffering on the cross. It delighted him that his son was so loving and so merciful. That he would give himself to save an undeserving people. God's love for his son, it's not a duty love. It's not like, well, I got to I have to do it. It's not a sacrifice for him. The father takes great joy in his son. Well, what exactly does he like about him? What does he like so much? What's so pleasing or delightful when he gazes upon his son, whether he's being transfigured in glory or whether he is suffering humbly on a cross? The thing that God likes so much about his son is that he's just like him. He's perfect. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfect in every way. He's perfectly. There's nothing to not like about him. Because he's just like God. So God, in essence, is delighting in himself. You say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that vain and conceited and narcissistic for God to love his son so much? Because when he sees his son, what he's really seeing is him. Well, for us, it would be. For us, it would be vain and idolatrous if all we were, if we were just captivated with ourselves and our own appearance and we couldn't draw ourselves away from the mirror because we're so just gorgeous and beautiful and we adore ourselves. The word narcissist comes from a Greek mythology of a man that, that got hung up with that. Couldn't, couldn't pull himself away from his own reflection. It would be vanity if we did it because we were not created to just behold ourselves as the ultimate thing. We were actually created to behold the glory of God. And anything less than that is vanity and idolatry. Whether we adore ourselves, whether we adore the things of this world, anything less than God is not acceptable. But it makes perfect sense. When you are the perfect being, when you are the most beautiful thing, If you delighted in anything else, that wouldn't be a righteous thing to do. It wouldn't be an honest thing to do. So God delights in himself through Jesus Christ. And it's a beautiful thing. John Piper says it's precisely the infinite regard that the father has for the son, which makes it possible for me, a wicked sinner, to be loved and accepted in the son. Because in his death, he restored all the insult and injury that I had done to the father's glory through my sin. The the, the Mount of Transfiguration, when you picture those disciples, they're already saved. They made that confession. 
They're following Christ. They've denied everything. But when they came into the presence of the glory of God, they are face down and they know the rubber hits the road right here. And it is only that hand of Christ. Lift your eyes up this morning and see Christ. Open your ears and hear the words of Christ. Because it is only through him that you will be saved from the wrath. And you know, it's contemplating these kind of things that actually enables us to grow deeper in Christ. It's, it's contemplating the glory of God, gazing at the glory of God, meditating on these things that enables us to become more like Him. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in Corinthians. And you were treated to a message a few weeks ago about this idea of being transformed and being conformed to what we're supposed to be conformed to, Christ, and not being any longer conformed to the ways or the things of this world. So how do you become transformed? Or what, what are some ways that you can be conformed to the image of Christ? The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is of the Spirit. And there's a lot in that passage and I'm not going to read it all. But he's talking about how the Jews are veiled to the truth and they, they're not getting it. But the Holy Spirit sets those that he sets free. He removes the veil and you get the truth of Christ. He is God. He's a Savior. He's a Messiah. And by adoring him, by gazing at him, by giving your mind and your being to him, you are becoming like him because you're, you're, innate, you're enamored with him. You adore him. And the more you study him and think about him and look at him, the more you become like him. Being transformed by contemplating the glory of Christ, just as we are doing this morning. Moses reflected the light. And we become salt and light. And it makes sense. It's just like, you know, sometimes I leave church and I have this tune in my head. I was in the presence of praise and there's this tune because I was in the presence of it. It kind of got in my head and I'll be humming it or singing it all week. Because I'm exposed to that kind of thing or also, uh, I'm from Maryland, and when I came here, I've lived here in Virginia longer now than, much longer now than I lived in Maryland. When I go home, I don't realize it about myself, but apparently I have a southern accent because my brothers and sisters are kind of like trying to explain to people why I talk the way I do. Yeah, he's, he's from Virginia. He's lived in Virginia for long, and I'll say y'all, and I just throw it around. It's because I have absorbed this. When, when you stay around something, when you're a part of something, and you fellowship or or unite with things, you become a part of it. Where it's like the um, progressive commercial, where people are absolutely panicking because they found themselves doing as adults the very same things that their parents did, that maybe they couldn't stand about their parents. They're like, oh, no, I'm becoming my mother. I'm becoming my father. Well, yeah, exposure will do that to you. And Paul is simply saying, the longer you expose yourself to the revealed Christ through his word, fellowship, prayer, all the means of grace, 
the more you're going to become like him. And what Corky explained last week is if you're if you're neglecting these things, if you are enamored with the things of the world, if you love them more and you want to you want to feed yourself and feast your eyes and your mind and your ears on the entertainment that it offers or the glory or the sensuality, or whatever it is that that piques your interest, these fleshly things, then, yeah, you're going to become more worldly. And of course, we see this in the church, right? It's no secret. You can't hide it. Why aren't we more like Christ? Because we're not as enamored with Christ. We're not taking the time to discipline ourselves and love Christ. It's a choice. I can choose what I'm going to do with my time. Can't you? I can choose where I'm going to set my affections. I don't have to, I'm not an animal where I just give in to whatever. And like everything that I'm impulsively inclined to like or love. I make decisions. And through the power of Christ, by beholding the glory and contemplating on these things, by one degree... After another, after another, I become more like him. It's a practical thing to do. And so what, where are we today? What are we becoming? What are we conforming to today based on the decisions that we make or the experiences that we have? What are we exposing ourselves to today? And what's the outcome? We know them by our fruits. We were reminded of this morning. It, it works. It works to study God's word. It works to meditate. It works to fellowship because we're seeing more of Christ from every conceivable angle. When you share a praise about what Christ has done in your life, I'm edified by that. He didn't do that for me. Maybe I haven't been there yet. But when you share that with me, I think more of God. I trust him more because I know, oh, well, if he can do that. It's fellowship. It's, it's the whole kit. It's a, it's a changed life when Christ comes into your life. We rally around him, every member of our body, our heart and soul. We give ourselves to him. And the more we do that individually and the more we do that as a church, the more we are enamored with him. Did you come to church this morning in love with God? Don't answer out loud. Did you come to church this morning in love with God? Did you show up here ready to worship God because he's your savior. He saved you from the wrath. He's going to you're going to live with him forever. He went to prepare a place for you and he is preparing you for heaven. Did you come just enamored with Christ this morning? Because that's the purpose of church. Based on the way we worship God in our worship time, what is that communicating to one another? The excitement, the vigor. I mean, what, what are we displaying to the world? Because we are Christ's disciples. And what the Apostle Paul is saying and what this passage teaches us is if we are enamored with Christ, it will be noticeable. And that's what we need. Love the Lord your God. That's a, the, the greatest commandment. The other ones, they all hinge on this. Nothing happens without this. So the transfiguration reveals Christ as divine. And the Mount of Transfiguration reveals the beautiful Christ as a Savior that shields us from the wrath of God because He bore it for us. And we can enjoy what we enjoy here today, not because of how good we are, not because we're good Christians. We enjoy the fellowship with one another in Christ because of what He has accomplished. Jesus is our divine Savior. And then just lastly to 
wrap a few of these things up in verses 9 through 13. Jesus again reveals his fate. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And at the disciple and the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So there's some clarification. A lot has just happened and the disciples have some some questions and Jesus has a few more things to tell them as a result of this when they're coming down the mountain. And I already mentioned that. He says, don't tell anybody about this until after I rise, because then it will make more sense. Of course, when Jesus walked out of the tomb in his glorified body, he was brought back to life. And then he ascended into heaven. And Jesus is always taking the temperature of things because he's on a divine mission and a divine timeline. And he knows that there's a lot of animosity. He already knows that people are plotting to kill him, but it has to happen exactly according to prophecy. And so he's just kind of reading the temperature and he's controlling these things. Sometimes people actually listen to him and they don't share. And sometimes they don't. He says, don't tell anybody I did this to you. And what do they do? They go and tell somebody, well, Jesus healed me. But it all works out in the end. They have a question about what just took place. So Elijah is on the mountain. Moses on the mountain. Why those two? Well, the Jews believe that neither one of those men actually died. They believe Moses didn't die because his body was never found. And then, of course, they believe Elijah didn't die because he was taken straight up into the area, into the heavens in an Uber, Uber chariot. And so he was never seen again. And so they're just, they think, well, Moses and Elijah, that makes sense. I don't know why Enoch didn't make it there. And so, but they're trying to understand this. And there was the, the prophecy that Elijah's going to come and he's going to be the one to herald the way of the Messiah. But he hasn't come yet. And Jesus kind of helps him along here. Well, actually, he has. John the Baptist was the Elijah figure. And you remember, he dressed just like Elijah. You could make some connections with his camel hair outfit. So to wrap all of this up, I want to contemplate the words that Christ said. The first thing he says is, I love my son. I delight in him. But then he says something else to the disciples. That he says to his son. But to the disciples, he says, listen to him. I love him. I delight in him. He is me. Listen to him. He's the ultimate reality. And when you, when you think about it, when you have that experience and you come to the knowledge that Christ is God, He really is God, then he, there is no higher. And what do you do when you meet somebody who is as high as it gets, as real as it gets, but also who holds you accountable to live a certain way and to believe certain things? See, there's this confrontation. Listen He's God. Listen to him. And so we're confronted when we come to the word of God to listen to what he's saying, because he's not just some smart guy 
or somebody who offers tips or suggestions about life. We are accountable to do what God has revealed for us to do as his creatures. Listen to him. And he doesn't say just hear the words like acoustically. That word has to do with a listening, a hearing and embracing. Embrace what he says. And I know there was time in our life when we heard the gospel acoustically, somebody shared it, but we didn't embrace it. And God is saying, I love my son. I'm pleased with him. Listen to him. He's God. And you're accountable to listen to him. Why else would he say that? Are you listening to Christ this morning? Hearing and obeying. I pray that God in our story would give us moments like this. Because we need these moments where we really understand how holy he is so that we can really understand how unworthy we are. And it brings you right back to the Beatitudes. Jesus has already preached about it. How do we come before God? We're beggars. We have nothing. And when we see ourselves in that light, that's when the kingdom joys open us up. Let's determine to exalt God. It's the people of God. Determined to edify one another. The gift of this word that he's given us. And determine, as we've already been reminded all morning, that there are lost people out there that need to hear about the glory of God. We can't save them. That's Jesus' job. And no, it's not a fair to share the gospel and they reject it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. God says go. Let's remember That there are other people to be brought into the kingdom. To be enamored with the glory of Christ. May God's glory be known among us. And may he bless the preaching of his word this morning.